0: Guru Nation, welcome to episode 422 of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. This is taken out of our site owner academy for clinical researchers that have their own sites. Uh, Most of them are new owners. However, we've been doing this for a few years now, so a lot of them are actually... Um, not new anymore, but they they were new when they started with us. So this uh, episode, you're gonna hear uh, a snippet from our Site Owner Academy, where we do weekly presentations as well as masterminds, which are not recorded. Uh, and we talk about site networks and we talk about the confusing differences between site networks and SMOs, as well as some of the similarities. So hopefully, you find some value out of it. Also, check out my Patreon channel, Patreon.com/DanSfera. It's only five bucks a month. We do weekly videos on how to increase your business opportunities using online and digital social media strategies. We also have a monthly mastermind where we all meet virtually we share strategies and we keep each other accountable so patreon.com/dancefair it's only 5 bucks a month link in the show notes also in the show notes is the CRA and CRC academies both of those are enrolling they're going strong um, also if you are interested in getting more studies for your site or maybe being part of our site network and doing a package deal just text me 949-415 6256 we can discuss more over the phone and with that being said enjoy this episode
1: yeah so this is a topic that's uh you know right up chris and my alley as far as doing a business analysis of uh clinical research smos site networks and cros basically various business models of clinical research. So the first one we're going to do on the slide two is uh, the SMO structure. So we actually just had a call with somebody who is probably going to be a client of ours. Chris, one of us has to email him, actually.
2: Yeah, I'll take care of that later today.
1: All right. So basically, uh, he was approached by people, which are SMOs. But, see, the thing is, when these people approach you, they don't call themselves SMOs. They're just, that's what they are. You have to know how to spot them. So they connect sponsors and CROs to clinical research sites. A lot of them also do most of the work for the investigators, which sounds good, but then they also um, take over most of the profits, which is not so good if you're a... Uh, physician, or uh, somebody who's trying to start a site. So, you know, there's never anything for free other than these webinars. These are free. Uh, But there's very few things in life that are free in this business, at least in clinical research. And SMOs are definitely going to get their fair share of partnering with the sponsor and the uh, site, right? So that's, uh, that's what that is. Uh, The focus for most SMOs is heavily centered around scale and recruiting patients, although really the focus of the SMO is around building the site and doing the work. A lot of these SMOs depend on the physicians to recruit from their own database, but the SMOs will help mine the databases. Uh, So this is the SMO structure, Uh, slide three. We're gonna talk more, a little bit more about it, and then we're gonna get into like some SMO history, the history of SMOs, and then sort of how that evolved into site networks, which is kind of where this presentation is gonna lead towards. But it's important to understand our history. So slide three, Chris. Uh, research sites that are part of an SMO are not independent and typically have the same process for conducting clinical research. Also, SMOs tend to negotiate one contract for all sites. So basically, they share processes, they share SOPs, they share business identification, meaning tax ID number. Uh, you know, this is usually the SMOs are one company, and then all the sites underneath them report to the mothership the one company. The mothership, eh? Yeah. So this is a model that was used in the 90s and early to mid-2000s. It kind of fell out of favor. Uh, We're going to talk about why. But uh, they're starting to make a comeback, you know. But the thing is, they're not really calling themselves SMOs now. So you've got to learn how to spot the difference between an SMO and a site network, right? Because some site networks are going to incorrectly refer to themselves as SMOs and some SMOs are gonna incorrectly refer to themselves as site networks, and you need to be educated on this matter uh, because uh, it's important for your business.
2: SMOs were popular between the mid-90s and early 2000s, both sponsors and CROs, which you've already mentioned. Both sponsors and CROs began to move away from SMOs after repeated FDA audits found that SMO sites had poor quality data. It's not just poor quality, it also repeatedly being the same errors. Yeah, process, uh,
1: process issues, systemic process issues, basically. And so sponsors said, you know what? Uh, we're, it's too risky to use SMOs because if the majority of the data from our studies come from SMOs and they're all sharing, uh, sharing processes could be good and bad. It's great for the budgets. It's great for the startup regulatory because you only need to do that once. It's horrible. Yeah, it saves time, but it's horrible if there's process issues, like consenting issues, like entering data on time, like answering queries. So that's what sponsors started noticing, especially in the mid 90s, early 2000s. And really, when they would approach the PI about it, the PIs that were part of these SMOs would always blame, point the finger at the SMOs and say, it's not our problem, you know, this. We've partnered with this SMO, and this is what they're telling us to do. And then when the sponsor would go to the SMO, they always point back to the PI and say, hey, the study is the responsibility of the PI, not us. So that's basically what happened at scale in the industry, which was definitely not a good thing for everybody involved. A lot of PIs, a lot of physicians that got involved in research with SMOs um, had bad experiences and... And decided not to do research anymore. So the, that's like the short SMO history for you.
2: When data quality became a concern, most SMOs quickly blamed sites. This had the unintended consequence of discouraging many principal investigators away from clinical research. And sure, if you're blaming if if your management organization is blaming you directly for errors, um, especially when the PIs are somewhat research naive, I would assume. Um, they going to be less inclined to work on research.
1: Yep. And this is kind of what we discussed, but pointing the finger was, you know, that, that, look, the SMOs were in this to make money. They're, profit, they're profit-driven organizations. The PIs were in this to get into research, and, and uh, they thought it would be easier for them to do research by partnering with an SMO. Uh, the thing is, both of them were right, but the execution was terrible, right? Because SMOs didn't really care about the quality. They learned that, hey, if we partner with enough PIs across the country, it doesn't matter. You know, the quality doesn't matter so much for us. We're still going to get paid. The PI is probably going to want to quit, but then it's their responsibility, not ours. So they made a lot of fast money this way. The problem is, They fell out of favor with sponsors, and it kind of ruined it for everyone else because there were good SMOs out there too. It's not that every SMO operated this way, but uh, it kind of ruined it for everybody. So now when sponsors send feasibility surveys to sites, they always ask, are you part of an SMO? And it's kind of considered like a bad thing to be an SMO now uh okay next slide slide six so this gave way to something else something in between an smo and a site network which are the rise of the preferred sites so as smos became less popular high quality sites began to be designated as preferred sites by sponsors and this is still going on this is still going on today every sponsor I I would say most sponsors have preferred sites. Now, there's nothing official about it. Some of them have official designated preferred sites. Most are just unofficially uh, designated as preferred sites. But preferred sites had priority when sponsors decided to award studies. Chris and I, uh, some of our sites used to be preferred, or still are preferred sites for certain sponsors. And, uh, uh... but not for all sponsors, but for certain sponsors. So preferred sites began to communicate and exchange information about upcoming studies with each other. See, at investigator meetings, this is when sites you know, started getting smart, especially the preferred sites. So the preferred sites would go to investigator meetings. They would constantly see this, their colleagues. And you know, the cream rises to the top. So they would go to many investigator meetings and continuously see the same colleagues there. And and they would start networking and communicating with each other and saying, hey, you know, uh, why don't we share study leads? Because we're preferred, we're both preferred sites for this sponsor, but maybe you're a preferred site for another one and I'm not. And maybe I'm a preferred site for another sponsor and you're not. So why don't we share leads and give each other an advantage, like a heads up, so that we can network and communicate more effectively. And it can go even deeper than that, but really it started with sharing study leads. So that gave rise to slide seven, uh, which is site networks. And these are, unlike SMOs, these are loose associations between preferred sites or just regular sites which led to the establishment of site networks. So this is where it's decentralized. So this is where sites can network with one another. You have to kind of be allowed to be part of the site network. Again, it's not like an SMO. It's a loose association. Nobody has to give approval. No sponsor is giving approval for a site network to exist. This is amongst sites themselves. So it's a loose association between sites that led to the establishment of site networks. One of the most important qualities that that set site networks apart from SMOs is that sites are independently owned and operate independently. So, this is where Chris uh, DSCS is managing a site network that's growing every day. You know, we have sites that we own, but they're still independently operated like Breakthrough Clinical Trials, Global Clinical Trials, Norwalk Clinical Trials are some examples. Those are all part of our site network that we actually own, but we also have many other sites across the country in our network that we don't have any ownership over, uh, but they pay us a monthly fee to be part of our site network. So now they get the benefit of sharing study leads with one another, uh, negotiating contracts and budgets on their behalf, helping them with source documentation, helping them with uh, navigating the nuances of each protocol. There's power in numbers. And so that's the whole idea of a site network. You, the, the reason why sites want to join site networks is to be part of the network effect. So with DSCS, we have sites that pay in to be part of our network. It's a small monthly fee. or And, and or we automatically put the sites that we own into the site networks as well. Uh, site networks are able to informally share studies, budgets, source docs, or best practices. This is like we discussed. Site network overhead is mostly dedicated to salaries and staff training. Even though site networks are growing, many sponsors still have preferred sites, either officially or unofficially. So just because you're part of a site network and one of the sites in that network is a, prefer- is a preferred site, it does not mean that your site is going to be a preferred site, but the advantage is you're going to get information from that other site. And then you're, it's going to give you a competitive advantage over, uh, your, other, uh, over your, your competition because you're going to know before they do because preferred sites know right away when a study is getting started or, or when a sponsor is looking to, to do a study. So the other sites in the network are going to benefit from this and the idea is, you know, uh, somebody needs to kind of run the site networks because otherwise you just have a loose alliance of sites. You still need a leader. So this is kind of what DSCS does. We're a focal point of the site network. Some of our sites don't even communicate with each other. They just communicate with us. And then we share that information and best practices, et cetera, budgets, source, all those things we disperse that throughout the site network when it's appropriate for those sites. Yep. It's, it's an interesting business model and it's some one that's still evolving, but it's uh, something that arose like a phoenix out of the ashes of the SMOs.
2: The site network's components, sub-industries include experienced research site, inexperienced research site,
1: a private practice
2: physician who is a potential member.
1: So basically, experienced sites know what site networks are. They know the advantages of being part of a network. Inexperienced sites have no clue what's going on. They're not going to know to do a site network. They don't even know site networks exist, much less they're not going to be networking with other sites when they're new. So you're not as a new site, you're never going to be invited to join a site network. There's just no value. You have no value to give to the other sites in that network. So they're not going to invite you in. Uh, and as an inexperienced site, if you want to be part of a site network, you either need to start showing how you can provide some value to some established sites. So you gotta go out, out and network, or you gotta join. Like, there's not too many companies like DSCS actually that for just paying a low monthly fee. It's like a twelve hundred bucks a month. I think during coronavirus, it's a thousand a month. Uh, you know, the sites get to be part of a site network, right? So you have both of these models existing right now. And we also have experienced sites in our site network. And you don't need to, I mean, you can be in more than one site network. It's You're not exclusive to just one site network. You, your site can join as many site networks as it thinks is necessary, right? So it's just a matter of networking, getting studies, and then even beyond the studies, sharing re, uh, best practices, and resources such as hey what strategies are you using to recruit patients hey what what source documents did you create can we use the same source document hey what kind of budget did you negotiate uh you know what's your overhead these are the things that chris actually does on a daily basis with sites as well as other people in our organization All right
2: so site networks components continue experience sites might be one of the most important components of a site network these sites are typically involved with patient care, and can recruit more patients. As site networks grow, they can invest in site training to improve data quality.
1: But there are site networks like ours, which, you know, will take you on. We charge a monthly fee, but it's very reasonable, and you get the benefits of being part of a site network, and you have full control over your business. You know, if you're an SMO, if you join an SMO, and don't get confused with a site network that actually operates as an SMO if they own any part of the percentage of the study profits or of your company, that is not a true site network. That's an SMO. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's basically the benefits of being in a site network. Now there's on the next slides we're going to talk about like sponsor benefits of using site networks because there are many. And so slide 11. Uh, we're talking about sponsor benefits from site networks. So site networks allow sponsors or CROs to identify many quality sites at once. So it's basically the best of both worlds for the sponsor. It's basically using the SMO model of streamlined approach to getting study startup and getting feasibilities and all those things, budget negotiations. But then it's also without the negative aspects of SMO, So without, the sites don't really share, the sites share best practices, but they don't necessarily share uh, processes, right? So best practices is just a suggestion. This is what our site's doing for this particular visit of this protocol, as an example, as opposed to an SMO, which would dictate exactly the process that the sites need to use. It's very different. Situation. So the sponsor actually gets the benefit of both streamlined approach and each site independently operating uh, its own processes. And should any of these sites be audited by the FDA, the site network kind of invisible. Like the FDA doesn't even know that a site network exists. Because remember, with the site network, there's nothing really formal. There's nothing really in writing that says you're part of a site network I mean it's just email correspondence usually between sites so unlike with an SMO where there's contracts that are part of the same SMO the FDA will then audit all the sites in that SMO well on a site network is kind of like an invisible force that connects the sites together uh, but is invisible to regulators for the most part it's a very important oh. point for sponsors a strength a strength for sponsors and actually after this call, here's how important site networks are. After this webinar, we have a call with a sponsor who wants to talk to us about our site networks.
2: Yeah, a larger these,
0: sponsor.
1: Yeah, for these same reasons that we're that we're outlining here.
0: Yep.
1: All right. Uh, slide, 12. So, uh, slide twelve. So, more sponsor benefits. So, sites in a net sites in site networks function independently and do not replicate systematic errors. An FDA audit would not find the same problem at every site within the network. Matter of fact, the FDA, like I said, wouldn't even know that a site network exists because they're informal. They're not, you know, there's nothing like laid out in documents. And um, yeah, that's basically what what this slide is discussing. The invisibility cloak of, networks. It's actually a very underrated strength.
2: It affects the site networks.
1: Last slide, guys, by the way. Last slide. All right.
2: Uh, academic medical centers, AMCs, are starting to see the benefits of associating uh, within a site network. Um, sponsors are starting to see the value that site networks offer. Sites within a site network are able to learn from each other to meet sponsor expectations. So, I, I mean, basically, you've already covered all of it, right? Uh, sites within a yeah. site are able to learn from each other. Of course, they share best practices, mm. um, along with other key components of research. I um, think it,
1: uh, I think this speaks. This last slide speaks to the importance of the growing importance of site networks to the point where even large academic medical centers are seeing a benefit in being informally involved in a site network because we know. Actually, another client we're probably going to get is a large they're not academic but they are a uh, a hospital system uh, which is basically similar to academic medical center in their structure where they're starting to see the the advantages of being part of site networks and being able to be nimble because of these amcs and these hospital associations you know they're very rigid structures with local irbs and everything takes longer to accomplish. Studies take longer to get started. Uh, they're doing a lot of different things. Their resources are being pulled in different directions. But being associated with a site network and maybe being able to have some nimble off-site locations where they can operate kind of like a smaller site, uh, they're seeing the advantages of joining site networks for, to meet these uh, opportunities as well.
0: So, hey, everybody, thank you very much for listening to another episode of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. Again, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Make sure you leave a review if you could be so kind, please. Uh, and also go to the clinicaltrialsguru.com if you're interested in learning more about who I am, who some of my guests are. Uh, you can have access to some of my YouTube videos. Uh, I do a lot of videos about clinical research. So go to the clinicaltrialsguru.com and you can also call or text me anytime, 949 415 6256. Also follow me on any social media platform, it's Dan Svera. And you can also email me if you'd like, Dan at the clinicaltrialsguru.com.